Jesus, your call is gentle, but it is also compelling. Thank you for the gospel that has made us yours in your perfect name. Amen. Please be seated. I invite you to turn with me now to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 3. We're going to read verses 21 through verse 31 of this chapter. We're in the middle of a series on objections to the faith. That's what we're doing throughout the summer months each week. We're looking at a particular objection to the Christian faith and considering how we might respond to it from a gospel perspective. We certainly hope this series will be helpful to you if you are exploring Christianity, but we also hope that it'll be helpful to you if you would already identify as a Christian. Why? Because these objections or or doubts aren't a thing that you only experience before you know Jesus. They're a part of the Christian life as well. And so it's important for us to have a robust reason for the hope that we have within us especially when these times of difficulty come. We've been following, just for a broad outline, Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God, and then supplementing to the outline questions that we've received from the congregation. We have about 50 of these books out in the Welcome Center to my right, uh, your right, as you walk on out of the sanctuary. If you would like a copy, be one of the first 50 to get there, and please take this home uh, as, as our gift to you this morning. Now, though, let's give our attention to this section of God's Word, Romans chapter 3. Starting in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one, he will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary... We uphold the law. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together again. Father, in these moments we wish to see Jesus. Lord, as we reflect together on your love for us and how you would call us to live in this world, give us the eyes of faith to see your grace. We ask in the name of your Son. Amen. You'll see then from your worship guide today's sermon title. You see it there? Christians are so intolerant. And that's the topic of the morning. Tolerance and intolerance. This is an objection that comes up often. Christians are so intolerant. They're always condemning people who don't look like them or live like them or love like them. Is it true? Are 
are Christians intolerant? Are you intolerant this morning yourself? The answer, of course, is very clearly yes, no, sometimes, maybe. The answer, of course, depends a lot upon what you mean by tolerance. And so together this morning, we're going to do three things. First of all, we're going to look at two approaches or two definitions of tolerance. Secondly, we're going to look at the problem with one of these definitions. And then thirdly, we're going to see how the gospel creates that other definition in our lives. Let's start then by considering two different approaches to tolerance. And here we're borrowing a lot from Don Carson, who's the research professor of New Testament at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Now, he looks a little bit like Yoda, and he is as wise as Yoda as well. And he's written a very important book called The Intolerance of Tolerance. And I'd encourage you to get hold of a copy. We have at least one copy in the library, uh, although I think I have that copy right now. So that's not available till, like, till Tuesday. So wait till next week to get a copy of that book or, or maybe purchase it yourself. An important book in which he contrasts two approaches to tolerance, what he calls the old tolerance and the new tolerance. Old tolerance is defined as accepting the existence of different views. In the old tolerance, you would accept the existence of different views. So it's perfectly valid to have your own opinions. It's perfectly valid to hold strong convictions. But you would always insist that other people have the right to dissent from your views and to argue their own case. You recognize people's right to disagree. You're even prepared to defend their right to disagree. Uh, The spirit is one of, I disagree with what you say, but I'll defend your right to say it. This old tolerance is based on an assumption, and the assumption is that there is such a thing as objective truth. Truth is out there, and it's our duty to pursue it. And so opponents should engage to try and persuade each other of their views, because none of us want the other to base their lives on falsehood. And so, yes, we may be Muslims or Jews or Christians or atheists, but with, uh, with our convictions and also with civility and respect, we ought, we ought to disagree and reason and debate together because we all want the truth to win out. Ultimately, the old tolerance is a combination of conviction and civility. Now, a great example of this old tolerance, or someone who embodies this kind of old tolerance, is actually the magician and comedian Penn Gillette. He's one half of the duo Penn and Teller. He's also the big guy, and the other guy's kind of wee, so he's probably two-thirds of the act, Penn and Teller. And interestingly, Penn Gillette is a pretty ardent atheist. In fact, he describes himself as as beyond atheism. Listen to this. He he wrote an essay for NPR's Morning Edition, and he said, I believe that there is no God. I'm beyond atheism. Atheism is not believing in God. Not believing in God is easy. You can't prove a negative, so there's no work to do. I'm saying this I believe. I believe there is no God. So, Pendulette certainly has no bias toward people of faith. Yet, after one of his shows one night, a, a believer approached him and shared the gospel with him and gave him a copy of the New Testament. Now, this didn't uh, change Penn's own spiritual views. He was an atheist before that conversation, and he was an atheist after it. However, reflecting on that conversation, he said this, I've always said that I don't respect people 
who don't proselytize. I don't respect people who don't evangelize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell, and people could be going to heaven or hell, or getting eternal life or whatever, and you think it's not really worth telling them this because it might make it socially awkward... And atheists who think that people shouldn't evangelize. Just leave me alone. Keep your religion to yourself. How much do you have to hate somebody to not evangelize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not to tell them that? If I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it and that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this, he says is more important than that. So what an example then of this old, uh, of this old tolerance. Pendulette has his own convictions. He is an atheist, but he thinks it's not just legitimate, but even necessary for you to argue your case with him. He might disapprove of what you say, but he'll defend your right to say it. Megachurch pastor Rick Warren, he wrote The Purpose Driven Life, which is the, the second most translated book in the world behind the Bible, uh, said this in an interview with the Christian Post. Our culture has accepted two huge lies. The first is that if you disagree with someone's lifestyle, you must fear or hate them. The second is that to love someone means you agree with everything they believe or do. Both are nonsense. You don't have to compromise convictions to be compassionate. And that's what the old tolerance is about. Recognizing the existence of different beliefs, but with conviction and civility, arguing your own case from there. The second kind of tolerance that Carson speaks about is the new tolerance. And the new tolerance can be defined as accepting the different views themselves. Now, this is a subtle shift, but you see what's happened here. Moving away from just accepting the existence of different views to actually accepting the views themselves. So yes, people have the right to hold their own beliefs and their own convictions, but more than that, these beliefs ought not to be challenged And these beliefs ought not to be opposed. New tolerance is based on the assumption that there is no one objective truth, no view that is exclusively true. All views are equally valid, and so we shouldn't challenge each other. You may be a Muslim or a Jew or a Christian or an atheist, but we should all affirm each other's views. Now, one interesting example of the new tolerance can actually be found in the chaplaincy center at Harvard University. They have more than 30 chaplains who represent many of the world's religious, spiritual, ethical traditions, but all of the chaplains have committed themselves to the following. We are, quote, committed to mutual respect and non-proselytization, non-evangelism. There we go. We affirm the roles of personal freedom, doubt, and open critical reflection in healthy spiritual growth. In other words, Harvard's chaplains have their own perspectives, but they'd never challenge you to accept their point of view. Wouldn't it be interesting to have them have a conversation with Penn Jillette and see how that conversation goes? The new tolerance then isn't just about accepting the existence of different views, but accepting the views themselves. Now you see that this shift is subtle in form, but massive in substance. 
subtle in form but massive in substance. You're moving from the free expression of contrary opinions to the mandatory acceptance of all opinions. Two very different approaches. There's also no doubt it's fair to say that in our day, in our culture, this new understanding of tolerance has been etched in stone. It's become the foundational assumption. It's become a necessary tenant. It's become the air that we breathe. To challenge someone else's beliefs makes you judgmental. It makes you a bigot. It makes you intolerant. And in our culture, perhaps nothing is worse than that. But we want to take a step back for a second and consider together, when it comes to the new tolerance, exactly what the emperor is wearing. Does he look splendid or, or is he naked? Having seen two approaches to tolerance, let's consider together the problem with the new tolerance. The main problem with the new tolerance can really be summed up in one word, and that word is inconsistency. Inconsistency. This is true in a couple of different ways, different sides of the same coin, perhaps. First of all, I think we can see that the new tolerance is internally inconsistent. Internally inconsistent. How so? Well, the new tolerance argues that we should be equally respectful of all beliefs since no truth is is better than another. But in reality, nobody lives like that's true. Nobody, even the most ardent proponent of the new tolerance, will believe, uh, will live as if all truths are, are actually equal. For example, you'll hear people say, you know, everyone has the right to define what's right or wrong for himself, and we shouldn't judge the conclusions that they reach. We shouldn't judge the conclusions that they reach. You pause and respond, well, okay, is there anyone in the world right now doing anything that you think they ought not to be doing? even if they feel good about it? Well, of course, comes the reply. Of course there is. Well, does that not mean that there are times in which you think we should judge the conclusions of other people? Well, yes, of course. No one believes all perspectives are equally valid. Everyone is intolerant of something, and rightly so. And rightly so. Intolerance has become a word that is now assumed as just universally evil. It's sort of just in every sense would be wrong to be intolerant. But we would all agree that there are certain things we shouldn't tolerate. Let's take the news of the week, whether it's the barbarism of Planned Parenthood or the murder of Marines in Tennessee or the ongoing warfare in the Middle East. A short list of three, but everyone on that li- everyone condemns something that's on that list. And again, rightly so. But if, like the new tolerance, you've jettisoned objective truth, you have no logical foundation to condemn anything. And so when you do, and we all do, you're guilty of the very thing that you forbid. The new tolerance is internally inconsistent. You can also see, though, that along with that, it's also externally inconsistent. The new tolerance, we could say, is incongruously intolerant of those who have the audacity to challenge it. Incongruously intolerant of those with the audacity to question it. It says, we tolerate everyone except those we deem guilty of intolerance. And in so doing, of course, is guilty of intolerance. 
Two, two examples, one from the UK, one from here. Um, in the UK, there's a bank called the Cooperative Bank. It's based in Manchester, England. And um, it asked an organization, a Christian organization called the Christian Voice, to close its accounts with the bank because its views on homosexuality were incompatible with the position of the bank. Now, the public statement of the bank reads as follows. See if you can uh, catch the inconsistency. It has come to the bank's attention that Christian Voice is engaged in discriminatory pronouncements based on the grounds of sexual orientation. This public stance is incompatible with the position of the cooperative bank, which publicly supports diversity and dignity in all its forms for our staff, customers, and other stakeholders. So, in the name of diversity, the bank eliminates one of its diverse clients. And even here you suspect that they're not being consistent because the bank presumably has Muslim clients who would hold very similar views on homosexual practice. The new tolerance is incongruously intolerant of those with opposing views. And there are some very practical or personal implications that that flow from this. We see this with the second example from, from here in the States. Four years after those 13 people were shot and killed at Columbine High School. You remember that? The school won its struggle to ban religious messages in the remembrance display that they'd constructed. The father of one victim wanted to include words that reflected his faith in the wake of this monumental tragedy. But the school forbade him to do so. The case worked its way up through the courts. Eventually the Supreme Court refused to hear it. So the decision of the lower court stood and the school won. And the remembrance display still isn't to include anything that suggests remembrance in ways that this particular family found most meaningful and helpful to them. So your remembrance can't include spiritual overtones because that may be offensive to those who don't share your views. And to be tolerant of all will be intolerant of you. New tolerance is, we could say, very much in vogue, but it's also deeply inconsistent internally, externally, and we shouldn't be afraid to say that the emperor is not wearing any clothes. So where am I going with this? Am I saying down with tolerance altogether? Our dismissal will be go there far and be intolerant in this world? Uh, Of course not. That's not where we're heading. That's not where we're going. Having seen two approaches to tolerance and the problem with one, let's consider together how the gospel actually creates the other. The Christianity is, uh, provides for us a firm basis, you could argue, argue the only basis, for a life and culture of true tolerance. Now the key connection for our purposes in this passage is the the connection that we can see between verses 22 through 24 and then verse 27. Let's look at it together. In verse 22 through 24 we get this beautiful summary of the gospel. I love it. For there is no distinction, Paul says. Why is there no distinction? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. The gospel comes to us and says, in creation, there was absolute equality. All men, all women, created with inherent value, 
inherent worth, deserving of dignity and respect because they are made in the image of God. But that is not where the level playing field ends. No, Paul says, verse 23, there is still no distinction. The playing field is still level because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Yes, there's a quality in creation, but there's also a quality in fall. Every single person who has ever walked the face of the earth by Jesus Christ himself is guilty, Romans says, of, of sin, of doing those things we ought not to do and not doing those things that we ought to do. And that playing field is, is level. It applies to us all. But then we read verse 24. We can be justified, how? By his grace as a gift. By his grace as a gift. How are we justified? How are we made right with God? Again and again our passage will tell us. Not through works of the law. Not through the things that you can do. In order to make yourself acceptable to God. But only by what he has done for you. That you might be acceptable before God. Verse 25 describes the work of Christ as a propitiation. That's the idea that Christ is taken into his own being, the wrath that was due to our sin. He's taken that punishment that we deserve so that we might forgive, receive forgiveness and life. Not in response to what we've done, but how? Verse 24, by grace. By his grace. And to make it redundant, he then says, as a gift. A grace, by grace can't be by works. But just to emphasize that some more, he says, as a gift. That's the, 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 the gospel summary. But then in verse 27 comes one application of this gospel. You see it there? Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. But by the law of faith. One implication of the gospel, one application of the gospel's work in our lives is that we feel intellectually and morally superior to nobody. We don't go into the world assuming that we are smarter than anyone else, but actually assume that lots of people are smarter than we are. We don't go out into the world assuming that we are better people than anybody else, but actually that many people will be better people than, than we are. The whole point of the gospel is I'm not that smart and I'm not a good person and I need a savior from the outside. To give me salvation, not by works, but as, uh, by grace, as a gift. And Christians who wrestle with this understanding, who wrestle with what it means to be saved by this gospel, by this grace, ought to be the humblest people on the face of the earth. We ought to be the humblest people on the face of the earth. And this is how the gospel creates true tolerance combination of conviction and civility. Conviction, absolutely. Because we believe there's no other name under heaven by which we might be saved in Jesus Christ. And seeing all that he has done for us and received that sweet welcome in the gospel, we are, we are passionate about, about him. But as surely as it gives us conviction, does it not also give us humility that leads to civility? A, a gentleness, a tenderness, a brokenness, a humility to move out into our world and engage with others. We don't meet them thinking that we're better than them, but expecting they might be better than us. We don't meet them feeling smug about the answers that we have and have received because we recognize that anything we have is only by the grace of God. And so we're able to both be uh, 
have convictions and civility at the same time. Now, friends, of course, um, I want to acknowledge, and as a church, we need to acknowledge that all Christians, and indeed we ourselves, have often failed miserably at living out this life of, of the gospel. Often failed miserably. Voltaire, the 18th century French philosopher, said, of all the religions, the Christian religion should, of course, inspire the most tolerance. But until now, Christians have been the most intolerant of all men. In other words, because of the nature of the gospel, we should be a people of a conviction and civility, and yet we often haven't lived up to those standards that we see in Christ. There are so many examples we could give of this. Let me give you one quote from a leading evangelical. I particularly um, like or loathe this quote. It's, it's our equally depressing or humorous to me because this quote's actually about Christians. He's, not, he's attacking other Christians, not even sort of the world. He says, you say you're supposed to be nice to Episcopalians or the Presbyterians or the Methodists. And to this, that, and the other thing, nonsense. I don't have to be nice to the spirit of the Antichrist. That's a bad morning this guy's having, you know? There's an anger there. You feel like saying, okay, pastor, what about Hebrews 12, 14, pursue peace with everyone? What about Titus 3, 2, show every courtesy to everyone? What about Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stir up anger. Of course, we acknowledge that many Christians and we ourselves have failed to live up to the calling that we've received. But even as we do that, we also acknowledge that our worst examples ought not to define us. Every group contains people who uh, do a disservice to the group itself. And we are recognizing this morning that Jesus is calling us to better things. He's calling us to a life of conviction where we move out into the public uh, space. We move out into uh, our public lives to live a public faith, unafraid and unashamed of those core truths of the gospel. A little steel in the spine, a little iron in the gut, a little bravery on account of all that Christ has done for us. But even as we move with conviction, we move with civility. Why? Because we recognize that this gospel is all of him and very little of us. We are the beneficiaries of his grace, and so we interact with a world that is in as much need as we are, with humility and gentleness. Are Christians intolerant? Yes. No. Maybe. Depends what you mean by tolerance. But this I can tell you, that the gospel of Jesus calls us to live with conviction and civility, a robust tolerance that will bring glory to God, yes, flourishing to us, of course, but also be a blessing to this culture, the time and place in which the Lord has placed us. Let's pray together. Lord, again, we recognize that you are the patient God the one whose divine forbearance passed over former sins until it was time for the righteousness of Christ to be revealed. And now in him you offer forgiveness full and free by your grace as a gift. Lord, I pray that this gospel would be doing its work in our hearts, that we might be a people of conviction and a people of civility. 
uh, people who are passionate about our Lord Jesus Christ and the objective truths that are found in your word, but a people who are, are gentle and humble and winsome as we engage um, with others uh, who do not yet know you. So, Father, bless us in these efforts, we pray. In the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.